Good morning. Yeah. Welcome to Seacoast. My name is Pastor Dan. What a great story from Don. What a great story. Just one more story of what we've been talking about in terms of renovation. Renovation. Gospel stories of grace at work. We're going to wrap this series up today, and Don's story really sets us up for that finish. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, get in the habit of bringing one. We'd love to. I'll give you one. There's ones on the back tables. Take one. Uh, Bring one. Get it open because we think this is the book. This is God's Word. And you want to be checking it because, you know, you never know where I'm going to slip up and give you some wrong information. So you need to be looking at the Word. It's part of our culture here because we're not here to hear from Dale. We're here here to uh, listen to God. Amen? I hope. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that you speak directly into our lives through it. We thank you for your spirit that lives in us that we're going to study about today. We thank you for the richness of the truth of your word. And I just pray that as we we study both the spirit and the word today, very literally, that you would uh, do your work in us, do your work in me. You've been working in me all week as I think about this sermon So I pray you'd uh, let that uh, spill over into my friends' lives. So would you do your thing, and we'll give you uh, all the uh, credit for that. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're a baseball fan, this is a big week. It's a big week because of why? All-star game. I'm glad there's a few of you in the room. First service, need to bone up on their baseball, okay? Yeah, they weren't. I said, so it's a big week, right? And they go... Uh, I don't know, you know, so, but you're on it. Yeah, baseball. This is the all-star game. It's the all-star break, but, and the all-star game has kind of become a bigger deal than ever before because one day before the all-star game, which is on Tuesday, by the way, is Monday's big event, which is the home run derby. See, now I've got an intelligent audience. I love speaking to sharp people. Home run derby time. Okay, so there's they're doing it different this year. I just read an article about it, you know, and it's, it's going to be pretty cool. They're going to measure the distance of every home run. You get extra points for how long you hit it, and, and it's going to be a big slug fest. When I think about baseball growing up, I grew up, uh, the nearest professional team to where I grew up in West Virginia was the Cincinnati Reds. So in the 70s, you can imagine, I had a lot to be excited about because of, here's quiz number three, the big red machine, the big red machine. Pete Rose, Johnny Bench, David Concepcion, I mean, all these all-stars. I think about eight out of their starting lineup became all-stars. It was an all-star-laden team, and they did big things. And one of the things they knew how to do, especially with Bench, was to hit home runs. The home run is kind of the, the, the fun moment that everybody watches for and every announcer dreams of. You know, it's going, 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 gone, you know, and it, woo, you know, and it's over the fence. Yeah, home run hitters have always fascinated me. When you think of some of the great home run hitters from my childhood and before, from my parents' generation, the biggest home run hitter was Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth. And then when I was a kid, I remember right behind Ruth, I remember people like the, the duo for the Yankees, Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris. Yeah, I remember they were cranking them out. And, you know, and then if you give them a little bit longer and you go to San Francisco, any San Francisco fans from the day, right? You had Willie... Mays, just Willie, Willie Mays and his buddy McCovey. So McCovey and Mays. If you're a Yankee fan today, let me come up into modern history. If you're a Yankee fan today, the number one home run hitting active player is not too many Yankee fans here on the West Coast. Yeah, 
Alex, thanks. Someone finally spoke up. Yeah. Alex A-Rod. Alex Rodriguez. He is the number one home run hitter still playing today. And this is probably what his last season, I think. Nobody knows, right? He may not even know with the drugs. But anyway, here we go. But uh, <laughs> I couldn't help but slip that in there. But, you know, but Alex Rodriguez. So, yeah, Rodriguez is the biggest home run hitting player active in the game today. How many home runs has he hit? See if there's a real Yankee fan in the room. 672 home runs. 672 home runs. Now, here's the interesting stat. You know how many times he struck out? 2,148 as of last week. 2,148. said, so, Dale, you've got too much time on your hands if you study all this stuff. So here's the guy who's the best active player at hitting home runs, 672, and he struck out more than three times that many, 2,148 times he has struck out. But yet, he's been MVP of baseball three times during that time while leading the league in strikeouts. Now you say, Dale, why are you talking so much about baseball? We're about the Bible. Well, it's because we're going to wrap our series today by studying the final moment in the life of Peter. Most of our stories in this series of renovation have touched on the life of Peter. If Peter was uh, playing baseball, he is the Alex Rodriguez. He is the Babe Ruth. He is the Mickey Mantle. He is the Willie McCovey, Willie Mays of the Bible. Now, why do I say that? Because he didn't hit singles. He didn't hit singles. He didn't hit doubles. He either hit home runs or he struck out. And just like the great hitters often did that, the fact of the matter is Peter, as he lived life as a follower of Jesus, kind of did that. Man, when he swung for the fences, he scored big. He's the one that Jesus said earlier in our series. He said, hey, who am I? And everybody, who do people say that I am? And everybody knows the opinions. But then Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Everybody is quiet except Peter. And he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, boom, home run. You got it. The Father God gave that to you. You couldn't figure that out on your own, Peter. Jesus comes walking on the water, and, and, and when he identifies himself, it's Peter that says, if that's really you, ask, ask me to walk with you on the water. And boom, he's out of the boat. Only guy out of the boat. And he walks on the water, almost makes it all the way to Jesus before he begins to sink. But at least he's out of the boat. He's the one on the Mount of Transfiguration that wants to build the tabernacles for the people. Every time, he's the one that Jesus says, are you going to leave too? And everyone else says, I don't know what to say. And he says, well, how can we leave you? You have the very words of eternal life. So Peter hit home runs spiritually. Did he ever strike out? The only guy I know of that Jesus said, whatever you just said is so stupid, so idiotic, so wrong. It is from Satan himself. Get behind me, Satan. Yikes. He's the one that had a number of big-time failures, the worst of which we studied a few weeks ago where he denied Jesus. He was a coward. He denied Jesus to a servant girl. He denied Jesus to common everyday people, not once, not twice, but three times. Strike three, you're out. So Peter is kind of the home run or strikeout king of the apostles. And for me, it helps me because I know that I think what God wants us to be doing is I think he wants us to follow Jesus with a full heart. 
I don't think He wants us to be kind of half-baked in our devotion. I think He wants us to be radical followers, fully devoted followers of Jesus. But yet as I do that, that means sometimes I'm going to swing for the fences and because I'm human and because I don't trust Him, I'm going to strike out. And this is a series on how grace makes a difference. And as I even think about that metaphor, we're going to see that grace makes a difference whether you are hitting home runs or whether you are striking out. When you hit a home run, grace welcomes you back into the dugout by reminding you you couldn't have done that without Christ. So grace humbles us, right? It should. What about when I strike out? When I strike out, bottom of the ninth, bases loaded, we're down by one, and I strike out. My whole team loses because of me. What does grace do? See, when you come back into the dugout with your head hanging, grace picks you up, gives you a hug, or in baseball language, slaps you on the rear. You know, it's kind of baseball talk for I love you, bro. You know, and, uh, and, and, and it picks you up, and it says, you know something, this is a team game, and we're still in this thing together, and my grace is greater than all your strikeouts. So this is why I love this story. This is kind of that, the climax story of the ministry of Peter. And we're going to learn from it how to respond to home runs, how to respond to strikeouts, and we're going to see what we can learn. Pick it up. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 and 2. We're going to hit the highlights of two chapters. Pick it up in verse, uh, verse 2. It says, until that day, this is Luke saying that he's recording all that's happened, all that Jesus did and taught until the day he was taken up into heaven. And after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to his apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering, after the crucifixion, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And then Jesus, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait, underline it, For what the Father had promised, wait for the promise. Which Jesus said, because they probably said, well, well, what do you mean? What do you mean wait and for what promise? He says, wait for the promise, which he said, you heard from me. I've already told you what the promise is. And then he repeats it. For John baptized you with water as followers of mine, but you will be baptized in the future with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is, is it this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Is the kingdom about ready to come? I mean, are we going to un, unload on the Romans? Are you going to overthrow the Romans? Bring back the power of God and the power of, of, of your reign over the earth and over your kingdom? You know, is it, is, is it coming? Because they've been anticipating this, right? And after all, if they just heard from Jesus' own mouth, by the way, a few more days and you're going to get the Holy Spirit to invade every one of you. Wow! Now, surely that's the time when the kingdom comes. So Jesus' answer is interesting. Verse 7 and 8. It is not for you to know the times or the epics which the Father has fixed by His own authority. In other words, when God is going to institute His kingdom, that's not your concern. But here's what I want you to focus on. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. But it's not so that you can overthrow the Romans. It's not, th- it's not so that we can bring that type kingdom to earth yet. 
although that's coming for sure. But you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. You're going to be my witness in Jerusalem and in Judea, the region, in Samaria with those people that you don't even like going cross-culturally, okay? And even to the remotest parts of the earth like that African map on the wall. So Jesus lays it out. And then it says, after that, he had said these things. He was lifted up, verse 9, while they were looking and received into the clouds. And as they were gazing into the clouds, an angel shows up. In fact, two men in white clothing, angels, stand beside them and say, hey, guys, wake up. He's gone. But don't you know that this Jesus who has been taken up before you into heaven will come in just the same way that you watched him go into heaven. He's going to come back. That's a fact. So what do we learn from the passage, at least this part of it, as we get out? We spend most of our time in the first 11 verses and then briefly in chapter 2. Jesus says two things. And I think as you look at the life of Peter, you think of Peter, Peter did two things. Peter was impulsive. He was always jumping ahead and acting before he really stopped and thought. He didn't engage brain, then act. He often acted and then regretted what he did. He was impulsive and he, and he, and he was impatient. And in contrast to that, Jesus gives him two commands to Peter and the other apostles. Here they are. Stay, wait. Stay and wait. Those are the two commands. So first he says, stay because you're not ready yet. You're not ready yet for this mission that I'm giving you. Wait until I give you the power to pull it off. You're like a renovated house. You're getting better and better, but you haven't flipped the switch. That's why I call this sermon Power On. So you've got an empty house. It's beautiful. It's well built, but there's no juice to the house yet. You just got an empty, dark shell of a beautiful house. So he says, without God's Spirit to empower you, you're not ready. So wait. Stay in Jerusalem and then wait on the promise. What are they supposed to wait on? It's the power to get flipped on by just as he had promised. Now, to refresh your memory, where did Jesus promise this? Here it is on the passage. Keep your finger in Acts for me. But it's this passage, John 14, 16 to 17. Jesus said to them, I will ask my Father. Now, Jesus right before this says, I'm leaving. Okay? Uh, fear not. But I'm going back to heaven, but you don't need to fear because I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, referring to the Holy Spirit, that he may be with you forever. Whereas I'm not going to be with you forever, okay? But my Spirit will be with you. And better yet, that is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him. You know this Spirit of God because He abides with you. He's been in and around everything we've been doing. You have seen His action. You've seen His power. But He's been with you, but will be where? In you. And it's the promised indwelling of the Spirit of God into the believers that Jesus had promised. And it's this promise that He says, man, you've got to wait until you have this happen before you go try to tackle my mission or else you're going to fall on your face. There's no way you can pull it off without me. Sometimes the Greek language is even a little more colorful than the English. When, the, when this word, underline, you should write this in your Bible if it's not already there from a previous sermon. When it says 
Um, I'm going to send you another helper. In Greek, you've got more than one word for another. There's another of a different kind, and there's another of the same kind. Guess what this is? Same kind. This is the Greek word that means, I'm going to send you another of the same kind as me, helper. I'm going to send you someone like me to help you. I'm going to send my spirit to indwell you. So it's a promise not of another, you know, because they're, they're used to having Jesus around. So you're going to lose me, but guess what? You're going to get another helper just like me, is how this could be translated. And he's promising the gift of his spirit. Now at this point, they speak up. And I love the fact, this has got to be Peter, even though I have to admit the text doesn't say which apostle says it, kind of attributes it to the group, because it says they were asking him in verse 6, Lord, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom? Actually, we think, why that was a dumb question. No, it's a smart question. Because all of the Old Testament scriptures talked about that when God pours out His Spirit, one of the things that would happen would be miraculous things would happen, and God's power would be unleashed. And he's actually saying the Spirit of God is going to invade the lives of every follower of Jesus Christ. And now, so they're thinking, boom, we're going to take over. Rome is out. We're in. Bring on the kingdom of God. It makes sense that that's what they would think. So, last question they ever asked Jesus, Jesus says, guys, you still don't get it. Wrong question. Now, Jesus doesn't say, you guys don't understand that now I'm finished with Israel and the church is where the action is and, you know, you, you shouldn't, there is no kingdom that will involve Israel. Jesus doesn't say that because Jesus knows that their question is a good one Because guess what? Scripture does say that in the last days there will be a tremendous spiritual revival among the Jews and that many from the nation of Israel will come to faith in Christ and and will be a part of this glorious thing called the church. And in the last days there will be a kingdom in which Jesus will come back and reign with Israel as the home base over this planet. So that's why I'm not what they call an amillennialist, which is a big word that you don't need to understand today. But it just kind of means some people kind of think maybe God's kind of finished with Israel. And the reality is he's not. There is a future that will involve the church and Israel in this glorious day in which there will be a kingdom that will come. And Jesus, Jesus doesn't say, no, guys, that's not going to happen. He says, no, guys, it's not for you to understand when it's going to happen, the times and the epics. Don't get hung up on that. Because I'm getting ready to give you the Holy Spirit, but it's not so that you can reign over an earthly kingdom. It's so that you can build a heavenly kingdom. Big difference. Therefore, I'm going to give you my spirit for a purpose that you would go forth and and share the great news, the gospel of Christ to all of Jerusalem. And we're going to go to Judea, and then we're going to go to Samaria, and then we're going to go to the remotest parts of the earth like Africa and elsewhere that you've never even imagined because I'm going to pour out my spirit. So he corrects them by saying, look, don't worry about the timing, but focus on your mission. Focus on the mission. The spirit of God is given for the mission. Now, before I roll on to the rest of this passage, let's just pause and think about this. I think the American church often talks about the Spirit of God as if God gives us the Spirit because, oh, God just loves us and He wants to comfort us and, and the Holy Spirit is called the Great Comforter and the Great Healer and that's all true. 
But what this passage emphasizes is God has purpose behind the promise. He has purpose behind giving us His Spirit, and it goes way beyond comforting us when we need a little love. He's not the divine, let me give you a hug, guy. He is the guy that's going to empower us to go. To go to Encinitas, to go to North County, to go to L.A. via our missionaries, the Norrises, to go to Africa, which we'll talk about next week. If you want to join me and learn how you can be involved, uh, whether you go on a trip or whether you stay here in the U.S. and support us in different ways, then meet me next week, 1045 in the cafe. That means you come first to worship at 9 o'clock. True? True. Don't show up at 1045 if you haven't worshiped God. Okay? Because I want you to do both. I want you to do both. But we are excited. That's why we as a church do what we do. Is that we're not in the business of just trying to be church to help each other just kind of get more cuddles and loves, you know, be loved on, although we want to love on our people to help us through tough times. But, you know, God has us on mission. We exist for the mission. So keep that in mind. And this is Jesus' last explanation of the mission. Mark it. So the angel says, hey, guys, wake up, get on with the mission. Jesus is coming back, but it's not for you to know when. Now, as we think about the implications of this, let me fast forward a little bit. There's a next section of the passage I wouldn't have time to teach, so I kind of gave you a short outline of it if you want to take a few key words down, because we start seeing signs that Peter really is growing. Let me just show you the contrast. In verses 12 to 26, Jesus leaves, goes back to heaven, and he says, wait. And they have to wait several days. So while they're waiting several days, you start seeing Peter as the leader of the Jerusalem church. Peter calls everyone together for an extensive days after days of meeting just to pray. It says in verses 12 and following. Now, this is the same guy that fell asleep in a Jesus-called prayer meeting. Jesus calls prayer meeting, has three guys with him. You guys just stay awake. Peter falls asleep. Now, Peter is the leader of these long prayer meetings in the next few verses. It's Peter who goes from impulsive action to simple obedience. Whatever Jesus tells me to do, I'm going to do that and nothing else. I've learned my lesson. It's Peter that goes from self-reliance to devoted prayer. It's Peter that goes from trying to figure out Peter's plan to reading God's Word to the group that's assembled and, 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 and getting His truth from God's Word. And then it's Peter who, instead of proposing a plan, he says, why don't we pray and pursue God's will as they choose a new 12th apostle. So it's a section of Scripture that I didn't have time to go into detail, but I just want you to see how Peter is changing. Because, you know, it gives me hope because sometimes I'm too impulsive, too self-reliant, I got my ideas when I need God's, and I got my plans when I need to be saying, you'll go, God, time out, stay, wait, what is your will? You could do a whole sermon just on this section. That's for another day. And then in chapter 2, we see kind of the highlight of these two chapters. As God's Spirit, as the promise, actually gets fulfilled. Here it is. Chapter 2, pick it up, let's pick it up in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in this one place, praying, seeking God. And suddenly there came 
from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house. Everyone could hear it where they were sitting. And there appeared to them what looked like, like tongues of fire. Um, probably not literal fire, but this is what it, how it appeared as tongues of fire, distributing themselves on all of them. And, they rested, and, and it rested on each one of them. Underline each one. And they were all, underline all, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. It's the word that means languages. As the Spirit was giving them utterance or the ability. Now there were Jews, verse 5, living in Jerusalem, gathered devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this second, and, and, and when this sound occurred, the crowd came together. They were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed, astonished, saying, why are not all of these people, they are, are, they're, they're like Galileans. I mean, they're just relatively uneducated fishermen and farmers. And how is it that we each hear them speaking our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and people from Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontius and Asia. In other words, if you're from Greece, you're hearing them speak Greek. If you're from, you know, if you're from, from Spain, you're hearing them speak Spanish or whatever. If you imagine if you're from Germany, you're hearing them speak German. You know, if, if you're from Egypt, you're hearing them speak Egyptian. So, you know, so they're speaking all these different world languages. And they've never learned them. It's a supernatural miracle. So what is happening is for the first time in human history, God is entering this period called the church in which he has promised to pour out his spirit to indwell every single follower of Jesus Christ. How do we know this is true? Later in the epistles, you see verses like this. Romans 8, 9. Romans 8, 9 says, However, You are not in the flesh, but you are now in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't even belong to Christ. He doesn't belong to Him. You think, well, maybe this is just true for like higher advanced super-Christians or spiritual people. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. This is being written to probably the most sinful, messed-up church in the epistles, right? Okay, you got all kinds of sinful, weird stuff going on in the church at Corinth. So he writes this in order to convince them to stop sinning. He says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Therefore, quit being, you know, don't quit committing immorality with your bodies. So, you know, because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He is in you. So this is not something. The the Holy Spirit, when you are a believer in Christ, um, you receive the gift of God's Spirit to indwell you. He never leaves. He's always there. Now, that wasn't true previous to this. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would come and go. Remember when David sinned with Bathsheba and he said, Oh, Lord, please don't take your spirit from me. Because the Spirit would be given or taken away. Um, In the Old Testament, prophets and kings would receive the Spirit temporarily. uh, Or people that worked on the tabernacle received the Holy Spirit to help them do their job well. I mean, there were different temporary times in which people received the Spirit. In the Gospels, we see Jesus pouring out His Spirit at times on His apostles or 
others. So, but it was for a temporary indwelling for a certain place, certain time, certain people. But now everything changes. Now we move into this period called the church that you and I are a part of in which the Spirit is promised for every believer to indwell us that we might be able to follow Christ with His strength. Let me ask you two questions. One was what I just answered. What happened? This is the fulfillment of the promise. This is, describes you and me. The second thing I want to hit very briefly is, so why did He do it with these miracles? I mean, you, you, they were speaking languages they had never learned. Uh, they were, you could see what looked like tongues of fire landing on people. You heard loud rushing wind. You know, and, and if I've not heard the wind, seen the fire, or spoken a language I've never learned, how do I know I have the Spirit? And, 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 and the answer to that is, I know it because God's Word promises me that I receive the Spirit upon becoming a believer. Now, some of you come out of church backgrounds that you weren't taught this, and I kind of feel empathy for you this morning, but let me give you the truth. This is an undeniable truth. You get the Spirit of God when you come to faith. Say, so, well, Dale, why was it done that way then and a different way now? The passage actually answers that. Here it goes. Why were miracles required when this happened? but yet not today. At least, here's why. Three reasons. Number one, this is the undeniable affirmation that the Spirit was a gift for all who believe. Notice the emphasis in the passage, that they saw the Spirit distributed to each and every one of them. Okay? And, and, and this was... And when you think about it, if, what if Peter just got up and said, guess what? God just told me that, you know... Ten minutes ago, we all received the Holy Spirit. Woo! Isn't that great? What would be your reaction? How, how do you know? Look at chapter 2, verse 33. Chapter 2, verse 33, Peter begins to preach. I don't have time to teach his whole sermon, but he says this. He says, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, meaning Jesus, went back to God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Referring to Jesus pouring out His Spirit. In other words, you saw it, you heard it, it had to be visible so that the church would know it had happened. Secondly, it was done as a miraculous communication that God's Gospel is for all mankind, not just Jews. Let me show you this. Look at chapter 2, verse 17 in Peter's sermon that follows this. Peter says this, quoting the prophet Joel, and it shall be in the last days that God says, I will pour forth my Spirit upon all of the nation of Israel. Is that what it says? Look at your Bibles. I've got to coach you guys up. You've got to start bringing your Bibles, okay? I'm gonna, I'm, because I love you, I tell you that. All right? You look down. What's it say? It says, yeah, I will pour forth my spirit upon all mankind. See, the fact that God uniquely designed this for a time at Pentecost where all of these nationalities were gathered and, and we, right as he pours out his spirit, they, you know, all of them were hearing them speak in their own languages. 
Man, the gospel was going forth to every language, every national people group in the crowd. This, what he's saying and shouting and proving miraculously is the gospel is no longer just for God's chosen people, Israel. This is now bigger than that. It's for all of mankind. Notice in verse 21 what Peter says. Peter says in verse 21, chapter 2 in his sermon, he says, And it shall be that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So there was a major, major shift going on. Third and final observation. Therefore, the powerful proclamation of the gospel and the birth of the global church was kicked off with this big event. And it began to take it global. It began to show them for certain this miracle was the final confirmation that Jesus really was risen from the dead and He was the real deal. Look at verse 36 of chapter 2. I'm I'm taking this right out of the sermon. Peter says this, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. You better know it for sure. If you didn't know it already now, this miracle was the confirmation. So Jesus is kicking off this global church with this global scope of a miracle to show that His Spirit is now alive and active. Final proof would be this. Write this down. In Acts chapter 10, the the, the Gospel goes to the Samaritans. and, And they believe, and as soon as they believe they actually begin to experience this miraculous ability of speaking in languages. It says that God's Spirit was poured out, and then Peter says, surely no one can deny letting them be baptized and join this movement called Christianity because God has given them the Spirit just as He did to us. Thinking back to Acts 2. You go to Acts chapter 15, there's a big debate. Should Gentiles, like you and me, should we have to first kind of become Jews and then we can become Christians? And when Peter, again, argues that we can come straight into the kingdom of God through Jesus, don't have to become a Jew first, he bases his argument, write it down, Acts 15, 8, on this statement. He says, you must accept Gentiles into the church. This is not just a Jewish thing anymore because we saw how God poured out the same Spirit on them just as He did on us. So see, this miraculous nature of what happened isn't meant to cause you to think that if I don't have some external experience, I don't have the Spirit of God. Don't go there. This is descriptive of how God unleashed His Spirit on the church and unified the church as a global movement It's descriptive of what he did because of the uniqueness of the moment. It is not prescriptive of how it should happen today. A lot of confusion on the Holy Spirit out there in Christian churches. So let me be the first to try to clear that up for you. So how do we take this and put it to work in our lives? And um, this is a huge topic. And I knew that at this point in time, I would be down to a couple minutes and I'm done. So guess what? I gave you on your outline, on the bottom of it, in a box, the summary of the rest, so that I could hit it just very, very quickly. So if you're not tracking with me here, you may want to pull these out. You will actually learn more. 
But in the box, here is what I say. If you want to be able to live and walk daily, right now, with the Spirit of God empowering your life, I think that's pretty cool. Here's what you need to do. Number one, you need to just believe. Look at your outline. I'm not going to put it on PowerPoint. You need to believe, put your faith in Christ. Because if you haven't received Christ, you don't have His Spirit. That's step one. Number two, then begin daily to trust in Him, relying constantly on His Spirit who indwells and empowers you. John 15, Jesus was talking about this when He says, Abide in Me and let My words abide in you. Depend upon Me. Rely upon Me. And I'm going to live in you. Number three, obedience. Obey. You love Jesus, then Jesus says, If you love Me, keep My commandments. John 14, 23. So as you believe by faith, not because you feel the Holy Spirit. I usually don't feel the Spirit, okay? But I know the Holy Spirit indwells me. And I know the Holy Spirit wants to help me live the Christian life. He is my helper, right? Like Jesus kind of helper. And if I know that, then I step out in obedience to follow where God is leading me to go. Every step I step in obedience to Jesus Christ, His Spirit will go to work whether I feel it or not. I believe that because that's what God teaches. So I step out in obedience. But what happens when I disobey, which I do at times? I sin. Then I need to breathe spiritually. And this is a great little image that I want to leave you with today of spiritual breathing. I learned this in college. I think of to stay physically healthy, it is smart that I exhale. True or false? Okay, and then, and then before too long, I should inhale. Okay, so if you don't really believe this already, let's just take one big deep breath and exhale together, okay? Now don't breathe in. Just hold it while I finish the sermon. <laughs> so you're not going to go there. You've already violated. Okay, you've already... And the reason is, exhale is good. Now you know what triggers exhaling? It's not that you're out of air. It's the presence of carbon dioxide that begins to build up in your lungs. God's designed you that that triggers a, an impulse that you need to exhale because you're getting rid of the poisonous carbon dioxide that's being filtered out and deposited in those lungs. And, and, and if you don't exhale, you're going to be in trouble. If all you do is inhale, you'll be in trouble. So you exhale the poison stuff. That's like sin. When I realize I've sinned, I need to immediately say, God, I confess my sin to you. I'm being honest. I blew it. I disobeyed you. I'm not, sometimes I don't even know why, but I, I, and I confess my sin to God. And I don't just confess my sin, I, I, I say, God, and, and I understand. And then I, as I confess my sin, I inhale. Now, let me get this straight for you, help you get this straight. You do not inhale the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit already lives in you. And he doesn't come and go, come and go, come and go, all right? So he lives in you, but he's obviously not controlling your life if you're sinning. Holy Spirit's not into sin. So I, I exhale, confess my sin. I inhale as I say, Lord, I claim your forgiveness. I thank you for your grace. I thank you that you died for that sin on the cross. Thank you for your forgiveness that you promised me. And I claim the fact that your spirit lives in me and he empowers me and I surrender and ask him to guide and empower my life. So I confess my sin and I claim God's grace 
and God's power through his spirit. And that's just kind of a spiritual rhythm that I do probably every day at some point. And I would commend to you. I just call it spiritual breathing. Then you want to feed on God's word. I can add some other things. You want to get involved in ministry and going because that grows you. But in terms of experiencing the daily presence of God's spirit, just remember that spiritual breathing based on the fact that he is in you. Sometimes you're going to follow Jesus and you are going to hit a home run. When you do, let grace keep you humble. Because you're only doing it because the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the people of God are doing their work around you. Sometimes you will strike out and you will disappoint yourself. And when that happens, I don't care if you disappoint the whole team. I don't care if you lose the game. Let grace welcome you back to the dugout. Give you a hug and say, I love you. It's okay. I died for that strikeout. It's all good. And get back in the game. It's a good thought to lead us to the Lord's table for the next 10 minutes. We're going to just worship around the Lord's table, remembering that the basis of all of this is what Jesus did when He died for our sins, rose from the dead. He's alive today. And on top of all of that, His Spirit lives where? in you. Pray with me. Father, as we go to your table to spend a few moments in reflective worship and remembering what you did for us, I ask you to uh, guide each of us to examine our hearts. If we've never embraced Jesus, may we put our faith in him right now and say, Lord Jesus, I, I put my trust in you as my Savior, my Lord. And I ask you to forgive me of my sins and, to, and I thank you that you give your spirit to me. For most of us who have already done that, make this a time to spiritually breathe a little bit. Lord, show us any sin that we're tolerating in our lives, flirting with, and uh, help us just be honest with you. Confess our sin, experience your grace. Be reminded of your forgiveness. And we ask that your spirit would empower us daily as we seek to obey you, follow you. Make this a time of rededication of our hearts and lives. In Christ's name, amen.